This is Jennifer Gonzalez welcoming you to episode 94 of the Cult of Pedagogy podcast. In this episode, we're going to consider this question. How accurate are your grades? My daughter was recently given an assignment to create a model of a volcano. It was a group project meant to be done entirely at home, and the main criteria was that it had to look like a volcano with extra points if it could actually erupt. In this episode, I am going to tell you about that project and how it illustrates a problem I think educators need to wrestle with a bit. If we aren't careful about the way we design our assignments, the grades we give may not be measuring what they should. Before we get started, I would like to thank Microsoft for sponsoring this episode. Over the past few years, Microsoft has added some really impressive accessibility tools to its products, like Immersive Reader, which allows users in OneNote, Word, and Outlook to read distraction-free with adjustable spacing, limited line visibility, a picture dictionary, and the ability to hear any text read aloud to them. Or Microsoft Translator, which sends real-time subtitles in 20 different languages right to students' phones while the teacher presents from a PowerPoint. To learn more about all the incredible things Microsoft is doing to make learning accessible to everyone, visit cultofpedagogy.com inclusive. Our other sponsor is Screencast-O-Matic. Screencast-O-Matic is an easy-to-use screen recorder tool that makes flipped and blended learning super simple for teachers. You can record your lessons, directions for student assignments, video announcements, and anything else you need a screencast for using either your Chromebook, PC, or Mac. Screencast-O-Matic hosts your videos and allows you to edit them so everything you need for video production is all in one tool. Cult of Pedagogy listeners can get 50% off your first year of Screencast-O-Matic Pro. Just go to screencastomaticcom slash pedagogy50. That's screencastomaticcom slash pedagogy50. I also want to thank you for the reviews you've left for this podcast on iTunes. I sit here at my desk and I record these episodes and I never get to see where they end up. Reading your reviews helps me feel more connected to you. They also help other educators find this podcast. If you've never left a review, but you like what I'm doing here, I would love for you to take a few minutes today, head over to iTunes, and leave a review. Thank you so much. Alrighty, so this volcano project. So again, the assignment was make a model of a volcano, extra credit if you can make it erupt, and it was a group project. They had to do it all at home with their group. So... <laughs> Once we got the assignment, it began. My daughter and I planned when her two friends would come over to work on it. I texted their moms and we set a date. We also figured out what supplies she would need from the craft store and when I would drive her there to get it all. We ended up spending about $40 on modeling clay, spray paint, fake palm trees, and tiny dinosaurs. And that's after I said no to about $40 worth of other stuff she wanted to get. The three girls met at our house one afternoon. One of the other parents brought over the materials they used to make the volcano erupt. 
I insisted that they do the project in the dining room where we could make sure they stayed on task instead of my daughter's bedroom where I knew they wouldn't. My husband helped them hunt through the basement for an old lampshade to give the model some height. He helped them figure out how to make the clay stick to the lampshade and then did a few trial runs of the eruption with them so they knew it would work in class. A few days later, I drove my daughter to school and helped her walk the model safely into class. So much had to happen to get this assignment done, and very little of that was actually done by the three students whose names went on that project. I'm not saying my daughter and her friends didn't build the volcano, but they got a lot of support along the way. And if any of that support had been missing, time, transportation, money, space, suggestions, supervision, the project would have been less successful. When I asked my daughter about the other student projects that were turned in that day, she confirms my suspicions that they ranged in quality. Some, she says, were huge and detailed, while others consisted of little more than a painted water bottle. Though I never confirmed it, I suspect that each of those projects got vastly different grades. So this assignment got me thinking, what are we measuring? Although a movement is growing to eliminate grades entirely, they are still a reality for most of us. And they impact everything from college admissions to whether students get to go on certain field trips. So it's important that we do whatever we can to make sure they measure what matters. And in too many cases, that's not happening. Take the volcano project. The grade students received on that ultimately reflected the resources each group happened to have at home, not what they learned or even the effort each student personally put into the task. Those with the huge and detailed ones probably got the best grades, and those with the painted water bottles probably got the lowest. Or consider these other scenarios, like this one. The student whose essay gets a D because even though he organized it pretty well, made some strong, well-supported arguments, and used rich vocabulary, his teacher's rubric allotted 40% of the grade to neatness and correctness, and he had a lot of mistakes. The teacher lets him revise for a higher score, but only gives half credit for the points earned the second time around. Or the student who raises his grade by earning extra credit for donating tissues and hand sanitizer to the class. Or what about the student who gets a C on an assignment that requires her to compose an original song to explain a constitutional amendment? Despite her solid understanding of the Constitution, she doesn't happen to have a knack for writing lyrics and music. Or what about the student whose project is turned in a day late and gets only half credit according to her teacher's no excuses late policy? In all of these cases, the grade is not an accurate representation of what a student has learned. And this is a problem of design. When constructing assignments, assessments, and grading policies, every teacher makes dozens of small decisions that determine how much a grade reflects a student's academic work and how much it reflects a mishmash of other factors. Those quantities are different for every teacher and every assignment. Despite that, we tend to treat grades as if they mean the same thing all the time. 
So what's to be done about this? If you or your colleagues aren't ready to completely overhaul your grading system, or you haven't moved to standards-based grading, you can still improve the integrity of traditional grades by considering some important questions while planning for instruction. And so we're going to go through these one at a time. The first question is, what learning does this task measure? The grade on an assignment should match the learning students are supposed to be doing in your class. This sounds simple, but it amazes me how often I see assignments that seem to have no real connection to what the curriculum says students are learning. If, for example, your standards require students to be able to explain how geography impacts culture, then assignments should ask them to do some variation of that, explain how geography impacts culture. If instead they are making a relief map that shows geographic features and their grade is based largely on how accurately they represent those features, then they're being graded on map making skills and not on the standard. This is especially problematic when qualities like creativity are part of your criteria. For one thing, this term means completely different things to different people. So students will have to guess how to perform well on this metric. More importantly, grading for creativity on an assignment that is supposed to measure something else will distort the results, making it much harder to tell who actually mastered the skill. So that's question number one. What learning does this task measure? Question number two. Are you going to teach everything you will measure? We often assign points for skills and qualities that students happen to bring with them but are never actually taught in our class. Here's an example. Suppose you assign a group project and part of each student's grade will be based on how well he or she worked with the group. Now collaborative skills are important, absolutely. But if you're grading for them, shouldn't you also be teaching them? Similarly, if you're going to ask students to do an essay type question to demonstrate their learning, suppose you're in a science or a social studies class, and part of their grade will be based on how effectively they write, then ideally some of your teaching prior to that assessment should give students practice in the kinds of writing skills you want to see on that task. If our lessons don't prepare students to do well on graded assignments and assessments, then those grades aren't a fair measurement of learning in our class. Question number three is, what will quality work look like on this task? When creating assignments, we often have a general idea of what a good end product will look like, but we don't always know for sure until the work gets turned in. At that point, it's too late for students to rise to our expectations. And if we haven't clearly defined them ahead of time, it's easy for personal bias to cloud our judgment. We will get better work from our students and we will judge it more fairly if we identify and communicate the criteria for success ahead of time. Many teachers accomplish this with a rubric given to students before they start. These come in different formats. A growing number of teachers are finding that students appreciate the single point rubric for its clarity and ease of use. And if you're not familiar with what that is, 
I do have a link to it um, on this blog post. So go over to Cult of Pedagogy, click podcasts, and then click episode 94, and you'll you'll be taken over to that. Just so that you know what a single point rubric actually is, picture one of those really big four point rubrics where you've got four columns, and then you've got many, many rows that describe all kinds of criteria at different levels. A single point rubric strips away all the lower stuff and it just focuses on the target skills in each category so you don't have all of these different descriptors of um, below acceptable performance the students just see what's expected of them and then there is space for the teacher to give them feedback when they uh, complete the rubric and telling them which areas they might need to work on and also other areas where they did really well so there's a link to that so a well-designed rubric is a way of communicating those expectations. I would also strongly recommend that you do the assignment yourself as if you were a student. And this is a process we call dog fooding. Uh, and I've got a podcast and a link to an article on that in this post too, all about dog fooding. Doing this will help you get much clearer on how you define excellence for this particular assignment. So the first three questions are, what learning does this task measure? Are you going to actually teach everything that you'll measure? And what will quality work look like on this task? The fourth question is, how much of the grade depends on outside resources? If an assignment is going to be completed partly or entirely at home, take a good look at how much the available resources outside of school could influence the grade. Things like transportation, money for supplies, access to technology, or help from an adult could all contribute to an end product that looks impressive, but may not directly reflect that student's academic skill or effort. If your assignment is designed so that the focus stays on content and skills, and if you set things up so that the majority of the work happens in class, the assignments you get back should be a more accurate representation of what each student can do. Question five is, can all students do well on this task regardless of how they learn best? If an assignment is delivered with only one type of learner in mind, with instructions only given verbally, for example, some students will be behind before they even start. Ideally, every task will be designed in a way that all students can access. Universal Design for Learning, which is abbreviated UDL, is a framework that can help teachers design materials so that all learners have equal access to them. To learn more about what UDL looks like, uh, I've linked to a video in the blog post and also to the official UDL guidelines, which are developed by a group called CAST. Um, I've been hearing more and more about UDL the longer I've I'm in education and I learn about, you know, all different aspects of teaching. And just really the idea is that instead of taking an assignment and modifying it for different learners, you design it universally to begin with so that um, students who have different learning needs or who just have different preferences uh, can access the material uh, in different ways. So that's about access. But there are other problems that you could have too when you design assignments so that students can't show their best selves. If you've got a task like that constitutional song assignment where it really favors students who have musical talent, your other students who might have preferred to demonstrate their learning through an essay or a poster or a video, 
they're less likely to shine. So instead of limiting student products to a single narrow option, consider whether you can give them choices in how they demonstrate learning. So let's take the volcano project, for example. If that had been designed for students to create a model for how a real volcano works, in this particular assignment, they weren't asked to actually label anything or, or you know, show any of the real mechanisms. But if they had, you know, and if they had been given choices in what the end product looked like, they could have uh, done it on a paper diagram. They could have done it in a video. They could have even done a student-produced skit, um, or they could have done a physical model. This would not only have given students an opportunity to put their unique gifts to use, it would also provide options that cost a lot less money to bring to fruition. So the sixth question, and this is the last one, is could this assignment be called practice instead? Too often teachers give grades to all classroom activity. They're convinced that kids won't do something unless it's going to get a grade. And that means that tasks that are really meant to give students practice in a skill or early exposure to content are ultimately included in final grade calculations. And they shouldn't. Instead of making everything graded, you could have students do some classwork as practice in preparation for a task that will be graded. So if students have to take, say, a test on long division, you could require them to do enough self-graded practice pages until they get 80% or better. These problems won't be part of their final grade calculation, which also means you don't have to grade them. But students can't take the test until they demonstrate proficiency on the practice. So it's almost like a, it's a gatekeeper activity. Students have to do them to get to the graded assignment, and they've got to do them until they can do them well. Um, but they're not part of the grade calculation. So this way their grade which is just that test, will reflect their mastery of long division without penalizing them for how long it took to master that skill. So again, I'm going to review the questions one more time. When you're designing an assignment, ask yourself, what learning does this task measure? Are you going to teach everything you will measure? What will quality work look like? How much of the grade depends on outside resources? Can all students do well on this task regardless of how they learn best? And could this assignment be called practice instead? In other, in other words, could you just not grade this one? Could this be an ungraded assignment? All of these things can influence how accurate your grades are in terms of measuring student learning. But there are three other factors to consider. And these aren't questions to ask yourself, but they're, they're factors that can have a huge impact on on grades. The first one is late work. Some policies on late work can have a significant impact on student grades so that a student who turns work in late can have very low grades even if they've mastered the content. The grade is a reflection of the student's time management or of stress or perfectionism or dozens of other possible factors. What it isn't a reflection of is their learning. Despite this, many teachers feel that taking points off is their only option for responding to late work. And I can totally understand this, and I used to do this too. 
What I am linking to in the blog is a piece by Star Saxteen, who if you have never heard of Star Saxteen, she has done so much work when it comes to assessment, student self-assessment, using feedback instead of grades. She's just done a ton of personal work and sharing on this. So if you've never heard her, I interviewed Star for episode 13 of my podcast, and it's called Could You Teach Without Grades? So if this idea of going gradeless or going as gradeless as possible, you're going to love that episode. So in this piece that I um, linked to by Star Sexting, she talks about this dilemma of late work. And again, she, she really validates it and says, this is a problem. It's not, she doesn't just throw up her hands and say, you know, whatever. I just let my students turn their work in whenever. Um, she explores the dilemma and she considers some ways that teachers can address the problem without docking points. And so I'll let you go and read that, but spoiler alert, <laughs> it is not a one size fits all solution because students turn work in late for a variety of reasons. And so what she recommends is that we figure out what the problem is with each student and we sort of customize our response based on what we find. Um, Here's a quote from it. She says, at the root of every challenge we face with students of all ages is a story. Our job as teachers is to figure out what the story is. Some students will be an open book and others we will need to be detectives to figure stuff out. But don't give up on the kids. Giving a zero is giving up and almost expecting them to do the same. So late work is one of the factors that can impact the accuracy of your grades. The second one is extra credit. Giving points for anything that doesn't directly reflect learning can have an incredibly distorting effect on grades. In some cases, it elevates grades, giving the impression of mastery without the actual mastery. And in other cases, it masks problems. If a student misses a few test items, but then erases them with bonus points, that student could fly under the teacher's radar and miss opportunities for reteaching. Students who are doing so well on the regular classwork that they finish early don't need extra credit. They need differentiated assignments and more challenge. Students who do poorly on assignments don't need extra credit to make up the missing points. They need opportunities to redo and improve on the work they've already done. And on in the blog post, I'm linking to a piece by Joy Kerr where she goes through, does it, I mean, it's, it's like seven, eight, nine different examples of really common types of extra credit. And then for each one, she just lists a whole bunch of bullet points of, you know, potential pitfalls and problems and, and questions for reflection on, on these types of extra credit uh, assignments. So I really recommend that you go and look at them because it just really shows you, you know, there's like an example of a, of a teacher that says, you know, um, take a picture of yourself and post it on social media with the hashtag blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it sounds like a cool idea, but like a lot of kids aren't allowed to use social media or a lot of times they're too young to be allowed. And it's, it's stuff like that that assumes a lot of things and, and also really doesn't have anything to do with the academics. So I would really, if you're somebody who tends to give a lot of extra credit, I would make some time to look over that and, and it'll get you to rethink that a little bit. So the last thing to consider when uh, it comes to the accuracy of your grades is the concept of grade averaging. If you calculate your grades by simply averaging them, dividing the points earned by the total possible points, your final course grade could be doing a poor job of representing what your students actually learned in your class. In the post, I'm linking to a piece by Rick Wormelli, 
where he he describes this dilemma and he uses some specific examples of a student and and their sequence of grades and how it really can um, can be a misrepresentation of what they learned. Now, having graded this way myself, I always liked the simplicity and the convenience of grade averaging. So I know that the thought of trying some other system will likely be daunting to anyone out there who's doing this type of grading. It's really common. But if it means our grades will have more integrity, it's worth it to consider other ways of doing this. And I don't actually have um, a recommendation, but uh, I've got one thing that you could consider. Um, It's something called a decaying average. Uh, With decaying averages, it puts more weight on assignments that are done later in a learning cycle. So in theory, this recognizes that skills should improve over time. Although this approach seems to work better in skill-based classes, you know, where the skill improves over time as opposed to just content that's delivered, um, you know, in different days and different weeks, the, the notion of a decaying average, for me, it shows me that there are other ways of rethinking the way we calculate grades so that they're better aligned with who our students are as learners. So rather than just throwing up our hands and saying, oh, well, that's what my grading program does, open your mind up to, to some other possibilities anyway. So hopefully I've given you some things to think about when it comes to grading. Grades are inherently imperfect. To truly assess our students' learning, we need to get to know them. We need to observe them. We should be studying a wide sampling of their work over time. And when we reduce all of that to a single measurement for the sake of efficiency, we definitely lose that bigger picture. But as long as grades remain a reality in our system, Let's be thoughtful and deliberate when we calculate them. For links to all the resources mentioned in this episode, visit cultofpedagogy.com, click podcast, and choose episode 94 to get a weekly email from me about my newest blog posts, podcast episodes, and products. Join my mailing list at cultofpedagogy.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. This podcast is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. To learn more, visit edupodcastnetwork.com.